We are now introduced to the brave young Jonathan as a man of faith, honor, and valor. A man after God's own heart, much like David, the future king of Israel. This is the 28th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel and chapter 13. Samuel and chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 15 through 23, and then moving into chapter 14, the first 23 verses. 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 15. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Samuel arose and got him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son, and the people that were present with them, abode in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned unto the way that leadeth to Ophrah, unto the land of Shul. And another company turned the way to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the way of the border that looketh to the valley of Siboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and Jonathan, his son, there was found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Etab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Boziz and the name of the other Shina. The forefront of the one was situated northward over against Michmash and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they hid themselves. And the man of the garrison answered, Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up unto us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within, as it were, and half acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. And the watchman of Saul of Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. 
Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thine hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great discomfiture. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them unto the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto beth The Hebrew writer tells us this very succinctly. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and verse 6. By the same Spirit, the writer says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of our God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Without any real means to carry out a successful campaign against the well-armed and the well-fortified Philistines, Saul plans to defend Israel by taking refuge in Gibeah amidst his own tribe, Benjamin. In fact, this was not a defense at all, but a retreat. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people that were present with him, aboard in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the Philistines encamped in Mishmash. Now perhaps Saul thought that if he hid in his own hometown, others who were not of his army would stand and defend him against the Philistines. Remember, this army that he had assembled was actually for his own personal protection, his own security force. So he thought that maybe that they would protect him if the Philistines came up against him. But on a more positive note, it might be that in Gibeah of Benjamin, Israel had a fighting chance. So even to give Saul some credit, which very difficult to give such men any credit whatsoever, maybe he thought that if they abode in, in this area of the tribe of Benjamin in Gibeah, they had a fighting chance against the Philistines. Now, Reverend Howie explains it this way. He says, Samuel in displeasure returns to Gibeah and Saul with the few who adhered to him, no more than 600 men, the rest having deserted him, goes thither also. Perhaps this was a defensible place where they might stand a siege, though they were unable to meet the Philistines in the field. So let's give Saul the credit that maybe he thought he had a fighting chance. I would take the other side of the, of the argument and say, no, Saul is a coward. He is not a biblical leader whatsoever. So he hides as the other men of Israel hid and as other men of Israel had conspired with the Philistines, as we read in verse 21, there were those who were turncoats. Now, while the Philistines were encamped at the hill top of the hill of Michmash, they decide to take an aggressive action against Saul, and they prepare by sending three squadrons of men to various strategic areas. We see this in verses 17 and 18. And the spoilers, and that word there is the literal Hebrew word destroyers. They were the Philistine destroyers. They were there for one reason and one reason only. That is what the wicked do. That is what the wicked are targeting to do day by day, year by year, decade upon decade. The destroyers want to destroy the church of Jesus Christ in the same way that the Philistines wanted to destroy Israel. So here we find that the destroyers come up out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turns one way, the other company the other way, and the other company still another way. Now note again what God is teaching. These Folks are aggressive. Make no mistake about it. The wicked will always have the natural tendency to be aggressively 
destructive against the church of Jesus Christ. That is the world in which we live and that is the world in which we will stay in if the church does not find itself valorous, courageous, brave. So here God is teaching us that the destroyers are bent on one thing only, seeking to destroy, especially when the church of Jesus Christ is ill-equipped to defend themselves. Now, we have seen that Israel had no physical weapons. But I will tell you today that the church of Jesus Christ is ill-equipped, not with physical weapons. Oh, the church of Jesus Christ, well, at least some churches, they're very equipped with physical weaponry. But they are ill-equipped with the weaponry of faith. We see this in Israel today, in Jonathan's day. We see it in the church today. We see it because people have lost their courage, because they have lost the knowledge of God. So, the wicked will always seek to destroy the just, especially when the just are ill-equipped to defend themselves. Now, God, again, warns us by this historical example. There was no smith found throughout, this is verse 19 in chapter 13, no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, because the Philistines had confiscated all of the weaponry, And we saw how this speaks of the registration of Israel's defensive weaponry. And this is a very grievous thing. Once Israel gives up their weapons of warfare and they ask permission to have weapons of warfare, whether it's theological weapons of warfare or physical weapons of warfare, the die is cast for their destruction. The Reverend Howies observes this. He says this, The wretched and weak state of the people of Israel when they needed most the weapons of war to defend themselves by the policy of the Philistines, they are quite unarmed. They had, during the time of their power, taken care to remove all the smiths and to forbid any Israelite exercising the trade so that even to make or repair his own utensils of husbandry, every man was obligated to go down to the Philistines, either to their country or to their garrisons. Only each man was allowed a file to sharpen those that were in constant use. But as for sword or spear, there were none found among the hosts of Israel, save with Saul and Jonathan, which is indeed wonderful considering the victories lately obtained over the Philistines and Ammonites. It may be, he continues, the success that they had from the divine interposition made them less careful to provide for their future defense, or they trusted chiefly to bows and arrows, or to their slingers, for which Benjamin was so famous. It argues, however, Saul's oversight and shows the reason of the present faint-heartedness of the people being thus defenseless, end quote. So the lesson is very simple. When the wicked are in authority, when they have power over the, the righteous, they will do everything in their power to maintain that power. And the way they do that is to remove any and every threat to their power, even if it is through violent means. Again, we only need to the power grabbers in Washington. Once they gain power, once the wicked gain power, they aim to keep it no matter what the cost. What the defenseless Israelites did was not only were they defenseless in their weaponry and in their their theological prowess, in their faithlessness, they had a psychological problem. And what the defenselessness of the Israelites did was it destroyed their philosophical and their psychological well-being and that also must be considered here. They were demoralized. Israel was so demoralized for their lack of any defensive weaponry against God's enemies that they were unable to think beyond their own circumstances. And this may be the reason why they kept vacillating on trusting God or trusting Saul or trusting man or hiding or or confederating with the Philistines. And the, the strategy is very simple. And we see that even today. Destroy the morality of the people and you can control them. Destroy the morality of the church. Destroy the the, the fidelity of the church. And you can control the church. And especially when the people are vacillating in their faith. The faithless can be controlled. And that is what the wicked want to do. But what of those of faith? How do the powers that be demoralize them? They will, as I said seek 
to demoralize them in any way possible. And they will experiment. They will experiment to see whether or not they can be successful in demoralizing them, confiscating the things of their defenses. And how do they do that? Well, we've seen this just recently. Mandating closures, stimulating fear, censuring various religious gatherings and personal gatherings, and they try to flex their power through legislation or judicial activism just to see who is ready to conform. It's all about control. The Philistines were all about control. Let's see who comes down to register their weapons. Let's see who comes down to give us their weapons. Let's see who comes down to sharpen their husbandry weaponry. Now once the enemy can separate the citizens from their congregation, once they can separate citizens from congregating, they gain an enormous advantage. It was not by happenstance. It was a carefully contrived strategy and tactic to tell the church it couldn't congregate by forbidding the people access to their churches, to their grocery stores, their restaurants or sporting events. It was a means to control them. They said you cannot go to these things unless you comply with our certain mandates all of which are unbiblical and to which threaten freedom. And that's how the wicked control the population. And this is a psychological tactic. This is psychological operations, which if not identified and dealt with, it is easy to fall prey to its demoralizing power and thereby be negatively affected by it. And how many churches, ministers, were negatively affected by the power grabbers. And this is why the fellowship of the faithful is so very important. Make no mistake about it. By being here on the Lord's day, in the Lord's house, it's a great blessing. And we've seen just recently how that could be taken away from us by the stroke of a pen, by the stroke of a mandate by a wicked Philistine, by an uncircumcised wicked man. And yet, the Church of Jesus Christ is just another Sunday Let's get up and mosey on in and clock in our time instead of getting up with full vigor. Say, this today is the Lord's day. We will rejoice and be glad in it and we will be passionately attentive and passionately ready in the night before, getting our children on board, making sure they're attentive and dealing with the Lord's day as the Lord's day should be dealt with. Otherwise, I kid you not, God will take it from us like they did in the first century, in the second century, they will imprison ministers, put them away, and they will scatter the sheep because the shepherds are imprisoned. And that's why fellowship, the fellowship of the faithful is so important. And this is why we need to continue with those of sincere and passionate fidelity. We need to commune with them. We need to continue with them and talk one another. Those who feared the Lord, the scripture says, spoke often one to another. And what do you think they were saying when they spoke often one to another? Talking about the weather? About what the greatest show on TV is now? The new app that I have on my iPad, on my iPhone? No, they spoke about the things of God. They spoke about the things that encouraged them to stand against the wicked uncircumcised. That's what they spoke about. The Reverend William J. observes this. He says, Here we see the advantage of society. A God of knowledge and truth has said, it is not good for man to be alone. And if it was so with regard to a paradise, how much more with regard to a wilderness? Half the pleasure of solitude arises from our having a friend at hand to whom we can say how delightful this retirement is. Ointment and perfume rejoices the heart so that the man, his friend, by hearty counsel. Why? But to encourage social devotion. There are saviors say to his disciples, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, that they shall ask and it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Why did he send forth the seventy two by two in their mission throughout Judea? But to comfort each other in distress, 
to confer with each other in cases of perplexity, to stimulate each other in cases of languor, to check each other in cases of temptation. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe unto him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. You see how important it is for the communion of the saints. The Lord's Day is not just about listening to the message. It is, it is the breaking of the bread, even more important, according to the Puritans, than the Lord's table, if that could be so. It was the exposition and the unpacking of the Word of God to challenge and to, and to reacclimate the people of God into the things of God. But there's some other component about the Lord's Day. It's that, that fellowship, that time of talking one to another, where we're encouraged, where we, we share each other's burdens and we challenge each other with things of God. Israel's deadly mistake was allowing the enemy con- to control them, especially their defensive weaponry. And the meeting on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath day here, on the Lord's Day Sunday, is part of our weaponry. It is where the army of the Lord exists. Now, it's interesting that Saul and Jonathan, even though the weapons of Israel were pretty much confiscated, they were able to maintain possession of their swords. Now, why? And even how? How did they do that? Well, we don't know for certain how they did it, how they were able to maintain possession of their weaponry, but what we can say, it is obvious that the Philistines didn't know that they had those weapons. Perhaps they hid them, which would be a good idea in that kind of a circumstance, deceiving the enemy. It's obvious that however they were able to maintain possession of their weapons, it was fundamentally by deceit. They deceived the Philistines. They deceived the enemies of God, the very people that were going to Destroy them. In fact, they lived, breathed, ate, and slept to destroy them. That was their life's mission. So Jonathan and Saul, obviously, by deceit, kept their weaponry. And if they hadn't deceived their enemy, Israel would have been totally lost to the tyranny of the Philistines. The tactic of deceit is especially useful in times of war and whenever life is in danger. And this was a time of great warfare. And what is so wonderful about this is that it is not only sanctioned by Scripture, this deceiving of the enemy, it is sanctioned by Scripture and rewarded by God. You think about that. Oh, we're not to lie. You know, if we were hiding the Jews during Hitler's occupation and they came to ask, do you have any Jews in the basement? I said, well, you know, I cannot tell a lie. Yep, I got three families downstairs, go get them. No, no, in a time of great despair, in a time of great adversity, in a time of war, we are commanded to deceive the enemy. We see this in the story of the Hebrew midwives. The account of Rahab and Jacob and here is implied in the story of Saul and Jonathan. In these cases, to deceive the enemies of God when they are bent against the people of God in a murderous fashion, deception is obedience. Commenting on the deception of the Hebrew midwives, Rahab and Jacob, Gary North explains why deception is commanded in these specific cases. Here's what he says. And by the way, If I'm ever hiding in your house and you do not agree with this, remind me when I come to your house to hide. Dr. North says this. By no bending of the scriptures can legalistic commentators, whose names sadly are legion in our era, find the slightest trace of condemnation by God in the midwife's act of defiance against the constituted authority of Egypt. The state had spoken. And the midwives dealt with it in a devious defiance. A biblical principle is here by demonstration. The illegitimate laws of a civil government may be legitimately skirted when they come into direct conflict with a fundamental biblical principle. This principle was announced clearly by Peter in Acts 5.29. 
we ought to obey God rather than men. Godly men must obey God, not the illegitimate demands of an apostate bureaucratic state. Had the Hebrew midwives been contemporary legalists, the infants would have either been slaughtered or else the lying compromising legalists would have guilty consciences and no new houses. Now, if you remember, the Hebrew midwives, after they deceived the state, after they deceived Egypt, God gave them all new houses. He rewarded what they did, being obedient to God. North continues, he says, But the midwives were neither legalists nor moralists. They honored God's law in preference to the state's law. In doing so, they acknowledged the absolute sovereignty, not of the state, but of God, as well as the limits that God places on the authority of the state, end quote. If we would have understood this, and I say Christendom as a whole, the state would have been told where to get off. And the church would have been rewarded. Those churches that did maintain their fidelity, that stood in defiance against the wicked mandates of wicked men, they were rewarded. So it's important to note, however, that by having weapons, Jonathan was able to lead, not only lead Israel against the Philistines, he was able to encourage the Israelites to go against the wicked Philistines. It's also interesting to note that Jonathan was ready and able to use those weapons while Saul was neither ready, able, or willing for fear of man in defiance against God. Notice, Jonathan was ready to use his weapons because he was well skilled in them. How skilled are you in your apologetics in declaring the gospel or in using any kind of self-defense against any tyranny that comes to your doorsteps? This is a lesson for us today as we've been given the weapons of the gospel. Some like Saul hide and refuse to use those weapons. They're, they're embarrassed. Well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to judge. No, we are the judges of the earth. If we judge not, who judges? The state? The oligarchy and the Supreme Court? Who judges? We judge because we judge righteous judgment by the word of God. But some are hiding, refusing to use the weapons of warfare, while others are faithful and bold, ready and skilled in the spiritual weapons that God has given to his people. But what must be understood is that since the modern church has acted more like Saul and Jonathan in these days, we may be forced to defend ourselves with more than just the truth of God's word. And it gives me no pleasure to say that. And so whenever you have a defenseless citizenry, there is the probability of a mass genocide from those that crave lust for ultimate power at the highest levels of government. Now, R.J. Rummel, in his book, now you really can't get this book anymore, but if you can get this book, buy it, pay anything, sell your house, buy the book. It's called Death by Government. His book details how the 20th century governments of the USSR, China, Germany, Japan, Cambodia, Turkey, Vietnam, Poland, Pakistan, Yugoslavia, North Korea, Mexico, Indonesia, Mongolia, Romania, Angola, and of course Uganda under Idi Amin have wiped out those citizens that were disarmed. History does not lie. Power is like a desolating pestilence. It pollutes and then destroys everything that it touches unless it is limited by an armed citizenry. Armed with the gospel and if need be, armed to the teeth. We are living in a day like never before and we are in a dangerous place. And if you haven't seen the writing on the wall, then you are definitely not understanding what the writing is saying. Daniel was able to read the writing on the wall. He understood that Belshazzar, that wicked man, was now in the balance and destruction was going to come. We are on the threshold. Rummel calls the threat of genocide by so-called democratic governments that wield unlimited power democides. Notice, these were all so-called democracies. And he says this, the more power a government has, the more it can act arbitrarily according to the whims and desires of the elites. 
and the more it will make war on others and murder its foreign and domestic subjects. On the other hand, the more restrained the power of governments, the more it is diffused, checked, and balanced, the less it will aggress on the others and commit democide. Now what happened here is that the church has forgotten its power. We are the ones to hold the state in check, and yet we have abandoned the political arena, the legal arena, the social arena. Rommel continues, he says, At the extremes of power, totalitarian governments slaughter their people by the tens of millions. In contrast, many democracies can barely bring themselves to execute even a serial murderer. Think about the irony there. One curious development in our American society today, in America today, is the governing elite's infatuation with China. Think about this. Why? Why? Why the infatuation with China? Why not the Congo? Why China? Well, it certainly can't be based simply on an economic relationship. It's not about economics. Oh, that might be some part of the reason why we want to be China-like, but but it's not the whole thing. It's not the root. And it, if it's not the root, what then is it? I submit to you this. Could the infatuation be more sinister? Could it be based upon an infatuation of how the Chinese wield their power against the citizenry? Could that be it? How the Chinese have push the church of Jesus Christ so far into the darkness that people are hiding in their living rooms whispering the things of God. Rummel observes this. Those who were shocked by the June 1989 Beijing massacre and repression of pro-democratic demonstrators should not have been, they should have not been surprised. Such cruelty and mass killings are a way of life in China. Indeed, no other people in this century except Soviet citizens have suffered so much mass killings in cold blood as have the Chinese. The pulpit is a place to warn God's people of what's coming. The sons of Issachar knew the times and the seasons and were able to project exactly what was happening. So when the pulpit does not warn its citizenry of what might be in the wings, it has failed in its God-ordained commission. We cannot just expound the scriptures and say, look, here's Jesus, and here's how he loves you, and here's how you should be a good boy, and here's how you should be a good girl, and a faithful husband, and a faithful wife. It's not only about that. That's why we have these narratives. Now once the people of Israel were made defenseless, It was only a matter of time before they became expendable. Having disarmed the people of God, the Philistines were that much more emboldened. They were that much more emboldened to go out against them. Because at that point, knowing that Israel was defenseless, they were assured victory. They were assured total control. Notice verse 23 of 1 Samuel 13. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. Now consider the boldness of one man. Verse 1. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. One man. The action of a leader. One man. He didn't do what his father did. He was nothing like his father. He didn't say, you fight him off, I'll run for help. That's what Saul was saying. One man. A fearless man. Jonathan first gathers intel to see exactly what the Philistines were up to and what kind of forces they had. What is important is that Jonathan is, is not, he's not interested in gathering this intel for Israel's defense. He's not looking to be on the defense. He's gathering intel to be on the offense. 
He wants to take an occasion against the uncircumcised Philistines. His strategy in attacking the Philistines, it's especially cunning since this would be the last thing that the Philistine would anticipate seeing. They've already stripped all of the people of their defensive weaponry. They, there's no weapons, so they thought. So it would be the last thing that the Philistines would think would happen. And this lesson should be noted. When the enemy least expects a response to their tyranny, that is when it is most needed and that is when it will be the most effective. You see, the hubris of the Philistines is like the hubris of the state. They think, if we say it, it's divine. We're omniscient, we're omnipotent, we're omnipresent, we have everyone at our beck and call. It is the pride that goes before destruction. It is that haughty spirit that goes before the fall and the Philistines were all full of themselves. Come on down to us and we're going to show you something. So when the enemy least expects a response to their tyranny, that is when it is the most effective. Appeasement, on the other hand, makes the aggressor more aggressive. Jonathan's motive was purely for the glory of God. That must be noted here first and foremost. He was not thinking about himself. He was not his father. He was there for the glory of God and for the liberation of his beloved people. He was all about his people. He was all about God's glory. But on the other hand, you know, Saul is hiding under a pomegranate tree. In the same way that Adam hid from God in the garden, Saul hides himself. And we see here the faithlessness of the tyrant king, the cowardiceness of the tyrant king, because that is what tyrants are. Cowards, bullies. Saul was not looking to God for deliverance. He was looking at his 600 men who could stand before the Philistines successfully to protect him. And that made him afraid. And it's here where we see his carnal mind at work. The carnal mind will always be afraid and they will always then act on their fears. Whereas the Christian, now of course, honestly, the Christian may initially be afraid. That's natural. But he will soon remember the words of the Lord, fear not. And then, in faith, quickly regain his composure, regain his courage, act in valor, and act in faith, and not cower in fear. But only the true saint can do that. But Saul is not only faithless, he's forgetful. God had already given Saul victory before, and yet Saul forgets how God had delivered the Israelites. And that made him doubt. And faithlessness and doubt, they go together. Fear, faithlessness, and doubt, they all go together. That's the trifecta. That's the trinity of fear. What we are to remember here is that not only is God faithful, God never changes. If He was faithful yesterday, He'll be faithful tomorrow. If He was faithful for Israel in those days, He will be faithful to us in our day. So we need to remember that God is always faithful. If he has been faithful to you in the past, he'll be faithful to you in the future. And this holds true for our nation. You know, God has been very faithful to us in America, faithful to our forefathers by establishing America as a God-honoring nation, at least in its infancy. And it's highly likely that he will, and this is my hope and my prayer, will reestablish it in the future. But he can only do this provided his people remain faithful, steadfast, and committed to reestablishing America, not as a polytheistic constitutional republic, however, because that's what America has become. A polytheistic constitutional republic. We are to reestablish America as a theocratic, God-honoring, covenantal constitutional republic with God at the center. America, if it is to be renewed, must lead by example in the reestablishment of Christendom within the West, the Mideast, and the Far East, if it is to be blessed of God. And that begins in the church and by the church. That should be our goal. That must be our prayer. And we start with our families. We start with our families. We start with our kids. This is a generational project. This is why I keep harping on parents, moms, and dads. Train your child to be obedient to mommy and daddy. When you give them the eye... And my mother used to give me the evil eye. I see it now in one of my daughters. She looks at her child and the child melts. That's what I want to see. You look at your child and they know, if I don't behave, the spankings will begin. 
There is no excuse for a disobedient child. I'm sorry. This is for your good, but it's bigger than you. Mommy and Daddy, this is bigger than you. This is not about your child. It's not about your parental upbringing of your child. It's about the glory of Christ and the future of Christendom. That's your job. It's for the glory of Christendom. But we think, well, you know, I got it all together. No, no, no. It's not about you. It's not about your family. It's about Christ and Christendom. That's our goal. That's what Jonathan's goal was. He wanted God to be honored. And so Jonathan begins his secret mission unnoticed. But now we have a a priest introduced. This priest of God, Ahia. What do, why are we introduced to him? It's sort of like he's he's stuck in the middle there. We we might initially assume that the character of this man, because of his, his pedigree, the son of Phineas, the son of Eli, apostates, we might think his pedigree was questionable. He might be another just an apostate priest. And yet, we should not assume of the man that he's apostate simply because his father and his grandfather were questionable because that doesn't always follow. That the son of a wicked man must be himself wicked. No, God can intervene. And in the highest case, it seems to be the case here. He was a very faithful priest, even to the point of defending David later on. And in doing so, the courageous man, the priest of God, in doing so, he did forfeit his life by the murderous Saul. Now there's probably another reason why he's introduced here. He was a high priest in the camp of the Israelites, and he wore the ephod, signifying that he is actively in his priestly duty. He's active in this priestly role. And this is a further indictment on Saul, because he made the sacrifice. He could have, if he didn't want to wait for Samuel, which he was told to wait for, he could have called the priest, but he didn't. He wanted to do it himself. And it shows the man was presumptuous and proud again and again and again. So Samuel is a little late, and Saul doesn't want to wait for him, so he doesn't even call the high priest, which he could have. He does it himself. A law unto himself, an autonomous man, doing whatsoever he desired to do with impunity, or at least so he thought. Now, verses 4 and 5 sets up the the geographical situation. Jonathan and his armor-bearer are hiding behind these rocks, and we have some incredible details. And, and, and you, you ask the question, well, why is that so important? We have a sharp rock here and a sharp rock where, there. Why, why are these so important? Why are these details given to us? Well, Reverend Scott observes that the place where the Philistines were encamped implies that they were still not quite sure of a victory over the Israelites, even though they had stripped them of their weapons. Because if they were really sure, they would have just attacked. The only thing you could probably surmises that maybe they at this point remembered the beating that they received by Saul. They didn't know Saul was hiding. Maybe they remembered the plagues that God had sent them during the capture of the ark. Maybe they they remembered all the things that God had done in behalf of, of Israel. So they saw that God's hand had been at times past very, very conspicuous for the Israelites. He says this, The hand of God was very visible in restraining the vast army of the Philistines from assaulting the small company of the Israelites so that they kept themselves entrenched in a fortified camp in almost inaccessible situation as still fearing their enfeebled enemies, the Israelites. Okay, so Saul is hiding. Jonathan and his armor bearer are ready to assault. And Jonathan comes up with this incredible scheme as his faithful and cunning warriorship has shown us. He says to his armor bearer, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now that's important because he's calling them not the Philistines but uncircumcised. We're going to see this later on when David approaches Goliath. He calls him uncircumcised. A very degrading title. It may be that the Lord will work for us for there is no restraint to the Lord to say by many or by few And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thy heart, turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thine heart. I have to give credit to this man as well. A faithful man. So here we see two men of the very same spirit, ready to defy the army of the Philistines, wholly trusting in God. And notice what Jonathan is saying. He says, God is not restrained. He can deliver his people by few or by many. It doesn't matter. God can do whatever he wants. God is not hindered by any circumstance whatsoever. We need to remember that. And so Jonathan, fully trusting in God, constructs a scenario to see exactly how God is going to bring victory. 
to himself and his armor bearer. And what he does is so incredible. While Saul and his army are hiding so the Philistines do not discover them, Jonathan deliberately shows himself, he discovers himself to the Philistines in abject defiance, trusting that God will bring him the victory, or at least show him what to do. So he says, Behold, to his armor bearer, we will pass over unto these men, and we will expose ourselves to them. So the test goes something like this. If the Philistines respond by telling Jonathan and his armor bearer to wait where they are until the Philistines go to them, that means that the Lord may not be ready to give them victory. But if the Philistines say to Jonathan and his armor bearer, you come down to us, then they'll know that the Lord is going to give them the victory. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer, they they show themselves, they say, here we are, here we are, out in the open. That's something the church needs to do. Here we are, we're not hiding anymore. We're out in the marketplace. We're not the frozen chosen. We're going to be victorious because we're going to be conspicuous. And so they show themselves to the host of the Philistines. They discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Notice, notice, behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. They knew they were cowards. But they mistakenly thought Jonathan was a coward. And the answer of God is in the affirmative. The Philistines think that Jonathan and Zalabar had an army behind them, perhaps. But we know that they did not. It was just the two of them. God had given them confusion. God had made them confused, blinded their eyes, blinded their mind. Nevertheless, They don't want to go up there because maybe there's an army uh, behind those rocks. So let those two come down and if they come down with an army, we'll know to run. Nevertheless, they challenge Jonathan. Notice what they say. I I just love this. We have to put this in the vernacular in 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 our day today, in our language today. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we're going to show you a thing. We're going to kick you to death. We're going to kick your butt. We're going to beat you to death. We're going to show you a thing. We're going to make you cry like little girls. We're going to whoop you. They were so proud. Proud. The Philistines tell them that you come down and we're going to give you a beating you'll never forget. I remember my mother used to tell me that. I'm going to give you a beating that you're never going to forget. But what these Philistines don't know is that the tables will be turned and they will get a beating that they will never forget since God will give them that very beating. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, you come up after me for the Lord had delivered them into the hand of Israel. So they climbed upon the rock and they went down and there was confusion. It only took these two men to defeat so many because they were devoted. That was the simple truth. They were simply devoted to God. That made them create, uh, not only creative, but courageous. And, and, and they, because they trusted God. And they were able to act accordingly. Now these two men, Jonathan and the armor bearer, a picture of the two, the church of Jesus Christ. Once we get our, our courage back, we will do valiantly against the Philistines of our day. Now consider the result of such a beating. It was both a philosophical, a psychological, and a military destruction. They thought that they were militarily elitists. They thought that they had the philosophy right. We're, we're, we're pagans. We have all these gods behind us. Our theology is correct, and we'll have all these gods help us. But... They also were proud. They were psychologically uh, proud. But they were destroyed on all fronts. They had a destruction on all fronts. It was now Israel's turn to demoralize the enemy and it only took two men. Notice verse 15 of chapter 14. And there was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled and the earth quaked. It was a very great trembling. Just think how comprehensive God worked in Israel's behalf. So once the confusion began, the Philistines began attacking one another in the same way that the Amalekites did during the days of Gideon. Because God works in that way at times. He causes the enemies to devour themselves. They will devour themselves. And all we sometimes have to do is watch. They set a net for us, but they are cast into their own net and they're taken by it. Now from his hiding place, Saul's watchmen see the battle and relate the situation to the king. 
And what is interesting about Saul's decision to march against the Philistines is that he first calls for the ark, which seems as if he's going to either use the ark wrongly, once again, not learning his lesson before, as a talisman in the same way Israel did when the ark was captured, when it was used as a talisman. He was going to use it, but God stops it. He doesn't allow it. But the point here is that Saul is not waiting for God. He's saying, let's bring the ark into the battle. Let's use our carnal minds. Let's use our own intellect. He's not waiting for God for an answer, but he prepares himself according to his own mind. So Saul says, bring the ark hither, because the ark was with the children of Israel. But when Saul saw that the host of the Philistines were being defeated, he said, don't do it. Withdraw thine hand. And that's only God's grace. So by God's grace, not as a result of Saul's actions to fight, but as a result of Jonathan's courage, many of the Hebrews, now fully confident, joined in the slaughter. After realizing that it was Jonathan that was absent from Israel's army, Saul commands his troops to engage. But what's disturbing here in verse 20 is that, and all the people that were with Saul assembled themselves, and they came to battle. They were hiding with Saul. In verse 21, we see this, which is even more discouraging. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, we have people confederating with the wicked who were calling themselves Hebrews. They were Hebrews, but they say, well, you think why they did this? Well, we don't, we want to be on the side of the winners. We want to be on the winning side. How many churches, how many church leaders today want to be on the side of the state? So they take their 501c3 nonprofit write-offs and they, they do these things and they do that thing and they, 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 they run their churches like businesses instead of like the, the sovereign Christ church because they want, to, they want to appease the state. They're like these Hebrews. They say, well, we want to hang out with the Philistines. And it takes a Jonathan. It takes the grace of God through a man of faith to wake these men up out of their stupidity to come on the side of the Israelites and leave the confederation that they had with the Philistines. So the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country around about, even they, notice the phrase, even they, could you imagine even they, also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. And then the cowards, even the cowards had now courage. Likewise, verse 22, all the men of Israel which hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, oh sure, oh now you've got them on the run. Oh yeah, come on, let's, let's go share in the victory. Sounds like a, like a familiar, familiar song of some of the other Israelite tribes. Oh yeah, now you've got the victory, yeah, let's share in the victory. No, 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 no. You should have been there at the first. Shame on you. But everybody loves the glory, don't they? So all the men of Israel which hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they, and there's that phrase again, even they, who would have thunk it? Even they also followed hard after them in battle. And so, beloved, by God's grace and by the hand of faithful Jonathan and his unnamed armor bearer, Israel is victorious over her enemies. Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed over unto Beth Haven. We will continue to follow the exploits of Jonathan when we continue in the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.